Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Kira Milmo and I'm the Events and Lectures Programmer here. I'm delighted to introduce today's event, um, Abstract Expressionism and its Legacy for a New Generation. Abstract Expressionism is considered one of the seminal movements of the 20th century and it's said by some to have influenced all that came after it, bringing new approaches to composition and in particular, but also to colour and scale. But we were questioning to what extent do the current generation of artists identify with the movement and its ideas? So in this discussion, artists Gabriel Hartley, Lisa Denyer and Selma Parler will be discussing their connection to abstract expressionism and the extent to which the spirit of the movement may be identified in the work of today's artists. The event today is chaired by Ben Street, who is an art historian, museum educator, lecturer and writer. He lectures for a um, huge range of institutions, including the National Gallery, the Tate, Dulwich Picture Gallery, Christie's Education, Sotheby's Institute of Art, and of course, the Royal Academy. Um, so I'd now like to hand over to Ben Street, who will then introduce uh, our artists. Thank you. Thanks so much, Kira, and thanks everybody for coming along. I wanted to say one thing, is that by means of introduction to, to these artists, who I'm, all gonna, I'm gonna introduce them all individually, and they're all gonna have the opportunity to talk about their work and its relationship or the nature of its relationship to abstract expressionism. But I think the first thing that I wanted to say is, is to remind you, if you don't already know, that this is the first exhibition of abstract expressionism in the UK since 1959, which means that the last time all of these artists were brought together in an exhibition in London, they were all contemporary artists. They were all alive, except for Jackson Pollock. So we are seeing something that was once contemporary art and has now become something historical and I'm really personally very interested in to hear what these artists have to say about that distinction maybe between the historical and the contemporary. So I'm going to introduce each one of them uh, individually starting with Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel Hartley studied his BA at Chelsea College of Art and later graduated with a PG dip from the Royal Academy. His recent solo shows include Reliefs at Foxy Production in New York, which is just opened, it's up now, and also shows in London and Milan. He recently curated projects at Seventeen Gallery and at Foxy Production in New York, and he lives and works in London. In the centre, Lisa Denyer. Lisa graduated from Coventry University in 2009 with a BA in Fine Art. In 2010, she received second prize in the Gilchrist Fisher Award held at Rebecca Hossack Gallery in London. Other awards include being shortlisted for Salon Art Prize 2010, Bankley Open 2014, and Greater Manchester Arts Prize 2016. She's shown widely in Manchester, London, and Spain. Uh, Lisa's work takes inspiration from ideas around modernity and escapism. Her practice looks at materiality and the transportive potential of paint. And finally, Selma Parler. Selma is a painter known for her use of soft films of oil, trompe l'oeil illusion, and bands and units of isolated colour. She has a PhD in art from Goldsmiths College London and has held solo exhibitions at Dio Moria, Mykonos, and MOT International London. Parler is a prize winner at this year's John Moore's Painting Prize. You can also see her work at her show Parler Games, a year-long site-specific installation with Marcel Joseph projects at the House of St. Barnabas, Soho Square, London. So what we're going to do, the structure of this is that we're going to, one by one, each of these artists is going to talk about their relationship to the work with reference to images of the work in the exhibition and also their, their work as well. So I'm going to start with Selma. Um, so Selma, I guess the question 
that I'm going to ask you, which is the question I'm going to ask all the artists, is about, it's sort of two-pronged, really. One is about your work, your practice as a painter, but it's also about how your work responds, if any, if at all, let's say, to abstract expressionism. So it's th those two things at once, really. Uh, so, Selma, over to you. Thanks, Ben. So my name is Selma, I'm a painter, and I was born too late to be an abstract expressionist. By way of introduction to my approach to painting, I'm going to offer up technical traits that are discernible in my practice that we can trace back to the legacy of abstract expressionism. In the dialogue I'm spinning today, it is through an attention to the technical limits of painting explored by the abstract expressionists that contemporary artists might find new ground today. So this is Clifford Still. So when I was 10 years old-ish, I went to the Tate, Tate Britain as we now know it. Um, this was my first encounter with Pollock and Still. Do you know the blue painting the Tate has from the same year as this one, 1953? Um, anyway, I, you know, I saw this painting and it was so much bigger than I and it was just this kind of wall of thick, opaque blue um, and my eyes struggled to um, <coughs> see within its threshold. Um, here was painting that asked their eyes to both enter its depth and scale its surface. And I remember the experience confirming my decision to be a painter. So still has a lot to answer for. In Newman's use of height and division, de Kooning's drawing and Pollock's enamel drips, there's a palpable negotiation with the history and weight of European Western art. With the presumed consensus regarding the redundancy of contemporary painting looming large today, Contemporary painters also ask, how does one follow? What dialogues are left open to me? So firstly, let me posit what I'm denied. Materiality, unabashed, unrepentant, exposed. If we say that the primary characteristic of modernism is the championing of painting's objectness over its image qualities, then still has performed this to an extreme. So that's opacity off my list then. So what do I take from still? Still shapes surrounded by raw canvas seem crudely carved, carved as if paint is taken away rather than added. Wow, separations of color so astutely felt that it is enacted as if tectonic, as if from behind the material surface. So this is one of mine. Um, in my works, I look to paintings intrinsic, extrinsic conventions. Each shape is isolated from its neighbor by space and by bands of shaded color, so that color is a repeatable unit. Through my application of thin films of oil, each unit is inlaid. Of course, still doesn't think in terms of units, um, but the separation of areas of color and the placement along the same plane is key. As I cannot follow Still's material acts, I employ an immaterial illusionistic device. So let's think about illusion. This is Ad Reinhardt. Um, have you all seen this painting? Yeah, uh, this is a sly one. So at first glance, you think it's about blackness. Then once your eyes have adjusted, uh, you realize it's about color. And then you realize you've arrived to color by the most matte, light-absorbing surface. So light has been removed from color. Reinhardt's materiality couldn't be more different from Still's model, and it betrays my neat assessment of modernism. 
still might have started me down this road, but Reinhardt secures my dedication. I wouldn't be so bold as to claim that I take from Reinhardt as any offering would pale, and I certainly don't get close to any time delay effects, but I could say that I'm attentive to his procedures. I use a similar method of paint preparation to Reinhardt, removing the majority of the oil binder so that colour and texture are parched like chalk pastel. This process enables my veils of oil to emphasise the softness of the linen ground, which in turn seems to invite a sense of touch. The transparency of my colour washes means that colour takes from the white prime surface beneath, so colour glows as if lit from behind. Sorry, this looks like two paintings, but it's actually one painting. It's got its borders like that, if that makes sense. Here, my bands of shaded colour delineate two rectangles, and we are told one is for each eye. As with Reinhardt, the act of viewing is scrutinised, but mine is described through syntax. Of course, for the purpose of today's discussion, I'm sneaking around minimalism and postmodern, well, so-called postmodernism, in order to consider technical traits that may or may not have been interrogated as such at the time and may or may not be fruitful avenues for discovery for contemporary artists. As I'm in the business of mining the historical canon, I am aware that my reflexive critique might be misconstrued as a program that can be applied to art rather than a critical gauge. So here's Rothko. Uh, I include Rothko as I feel his work doesn't invite technical scrutiny. Rothko's use of symmetry, for example, is an improvised effect that is felt, but the viewer barely recognises any structure. This is just a taste of my latest project. As Ben said, I've uh, got this show, Parlour Games, at the House of St Barnabas, curated by Marcel Joseph Projects. Um, these are three of my paintings. Each is 222 centimetres tall, and they've been made to fit the room's 1750s Rococo panelling. In the paintings, I use repeatable units of shaded colour to reflect the architectural surroundings. Thanks a lot, someone. That's really, really, really great. Great insight. Fantastic. Gabriel. Okay, so this is me. This is my studio. Um, so when you first asked the question of the influence of abstract expressionism, the thing I really jumped to or thought of the most was my studio and the whole practice, that kind of um, being completely engrossed in material and paint. Um, and that, that is a studio floor which is thick, that thick pretty much of, of, of paint. It kind of really annoys people when they come to my studio. And it's pretty much all they ever talk about. Um, but because it is, it sort of embodies a history and a thought process which is so um, entrenched in abstract expressionism. Um, and I there's a point to it, which is, it almost becomes almost a parody. There's a, there's, a, there's a feeling when I come in my studio and I'm put on these clothes which are soaked in paint and it's like all over me, that it feels <clears throat> almost ridiculous. Um, which I think, I kind of feel that Pollock and de Kooning and all these guys probably had the same feeling. Um, they kind of, I'm, I'm, I think there's a Franz Klein quote where he says that to make art, you should always be on the, um, on the verge of embarrassment. Which I think is true. I think that's what, what that kind of approach is about. It's about losing yourself and getting so entrenched in the thing and the material that you're kind of quite unaware of yourself. Um, so let's yeah, skip on to the thing. So that's, this is one of my paintings, which I picked as, um, as being a sort of most abexy. Um, I think, firstly, because of the dimensions, it's kind of like inescapable thinking about Pollock or, or something. Um, and then also this feeling of these figures and this repetition of figures which draws to mind Pollock's mural, and also um, thinking about de Kooning's, the way the sort of body and the figure disappears. 
<coughs> um, I'm also really drawn to Frankenthaler's painting upstairs, um, which has this, where the sense of the paint kind of being stained and removed, um, which is something I'm really drawn to in, in relation to the figure as well, because it's kind of, for me, that's where abstraction becomes interesting, where you start to lose your sense of yourself. But the person I want to talk about a bit was, was, Got, um, was Adolf Gottlieb. Um, there's, there's two paintings in the show, one from his early series of, um, of pictograms, where he sort of builds up a history of his own language through signs and symbols uh, until they kind of lose their original language and become his own thing which he can maneuver. But this one is from the later series of Bursts, um, where he used the, the, a really simple dynamic of the sun and the ground, uh, but through kind of like, and just thinking about, by thinking about that really simple pairing, he was allowed so much freedom. And that's a word which comes up a lot with abstract expressions is freedom. And it's kind of one of those things that's really quite hard to talk about, to imagine really, but when you feel it and when you see it, you, you know it. And I think with Adolf Gottlieb, he's someone who really embraces that. So this, this is an install shot from a recent show. I, I work between painting and sculpture and photography. Uh, and I kind of quite like to keep things as open as possible. Uh, and each thing sort of relates to each other. So just by thinking that Gottlieb thing, of just thinking about a pairing, it, it, it enabled to think about how I could think about a pairing with a photograph <coughs> and a painting and a painting and a sculpture. Um, and then somebody who really draws to mind thinking about this is, is also David Smith. Um, this is the, the letter, it's in the first room. Uh, and it, it really relates to those, actually, that early Gottlieb as well, thinking about the, the, the building up of the language. Um, but I'm really, I think those sculptures are amazing in the show, and they're really varied. Um, but I think it's also interesting, what I find really interesting to think about is, is not just how they look like a painting, but also how the painting relates to the sculpture. I think it's much more of a back and forth than perhaps is sometimes talked about. Um, and then if we go on, then, and also there was the, I, I was really drawn to that uh, room with the photographs. Uh, again, that feeling that photography is influenced by painting, but also there's some later Frederick Sommers where he's, he's making um, paintings that kind of really relate to phot photography. So it's, I think it's, it's what I'm really interested in is this kind of back and forth between every different process and, mater and material. Thanks so much. That's great, Gabriel. Brilliant. So uh, we have, as promised, we've got Lisa uh, and uh, I'll hand straight over to you. So Brilliant. Thanks, Ben. Here you go. Um, that's great. So, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, transience, impermanence, and um, I suppose the transportive potential of paint. Um, and I'm working a lot with framing devices, found objects, signs and symbols I've been thinking a lot about recently. Um, and I think they, those kinds of things have links with abstract expressionism. Um, and I just think a lot of the visual elements that you get with abstract expressionism have become innate in contemporary painting. They've, they've kind of become part of the, the visual language. Um, and I think there is more of a, um, I suppose, a, an emphasis on um, the wider conversation around materiality, just thinking about those formal, formalist um, elements such as you know, the flatness and the shape of the support and the pigment. Um, but this painting, Forest, um, so I made this this year, and I think it's just, it's a good example of, um, I suppose, the, using quite a, an 
autonomous um, gestural approach to the painting where I try and just let myself switch off as much as possible and just make these marks. So in the initial layers, I'm, I haven't got a plan at all. It's just, it's coming very spontaneously. Um, and then I might try and order it more geometrically afterwards. But I realised afterwards um, when I'd been making this painting that I was thinking about um, a forest in Japan, which is... Um, Aokigahara, which is the Japanese suicide forest. And I think I was just thinking about a sense of unbalance. Um, and that just kind of made me think about the idea of symbolism in abstract expressionism. And um, just, for example, the triangle, the dynamic um, spiritual nature of it. That piece, I suppose, the gestural aspect and the symbolism, um, those are the links that I can see there with that piece. So Clifford Still, um, coming from a, la a landscape background, um, I really respond to this. The main themes I can see within it are, are landscape, um, the individual and time, time passing as well, because you're just transported to this, you know, those kind of temporal extremes of the beginning of time, the end of time. You're in this kind of dark void and it really emphasises, you know, you kind of being on your own, the individual. Um, and the use of colour as well is just amazing. I'm just going to talk about, you know, some of the connections that I can feel with this work and hopefully something will come out of that. But um, just the way it kind of sucks out the light in the room and it's, it's so engaging. And as I say, you just feel like this tiny kind of person um, when you're looking at it. Um, but those landscape connotations, I think, th those are where I have links with my own work. Um, if we just move on to the next slide, that's all right. So Portal, I was reading um, the curator of the exhibition, one of the curators, David Angfam. In his book, he mentions about um, frames and um, those kinds of devices, those Im that kind of imagery in painting. Um, and I, he said something about how we associate frames and boxes with the passage of time because of the idea around things stored and you know things set aside and separated and put into storage and that really resonated with me because I've been working with framing devices for probably about a year now um, so that kind of struck a chord and then obviously when you, you're looking at the rectangle I'm really interested in how the rectangle has you know moved away from just becoming the shape of the support it's actually you know the subject in its own right and it's so um, it just conjures up imagery of windows and doors. And again, that links in with the transportive potential of paint. So again, Gottlieb. And for the same, for very similar reasons, actually, just thinking about signs and symbols. And there's just something so primal about this work. Um, but you've got that connection to it. And again, it's landscape because he spent a lot of time in the Arizona desert. So you can see that those landscape associations quite soon. But... It's just, it just got me thinking about signs and symbols and um, the next painting along, which again, that's one of mine. So I was just thinking about the difference between the kinds of signs and symbols that Gottlieb used and then, you know, how ubiquitous, ubiquitous they are in contemporary life. You know, you think about logos, branding, um, road signs, road marking. So this is what I was thinking about in, in this piece. Um, and it's on a piece of wood, which is actually a reconfigured cupboard door. So um, that has links with artists such as, you know, David Smith with the appropriation of materials. Um, and then I think this is the last one. So Philip Guston. And again, coming back to symbolism, 
I was thinking a lot about the cigarette as a symbol in Guston's work and just how perfect that was for his work because when I look at his work, whether it's the early abstract expressionist work or the later work, I just get a sense of authenticity and, you know, he was true to his style, you know, the whole way through. It's kind of this visceral, um, voracious kind of feeling that you get from his work and um, just... You know, he said himself that at that time of the beginnings of abstract expressionism, anything was possible. So it was open and anything could happen, but it had to be authentic. It had to come from the gut and there was a rejection of anything that wasn't authentic. And I think that's the kind of thing that I associate with Guston's work. And that's why he's really a big inspiration. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for for illuminating this. I mean, it's so. I should point out uh, some eagle-eyed... Participants might have seen that as well, is that this is not the, the Guston that's in the show. This is a different one. From, from the same period, though, from that figurative period at the end of his life. It's really fascinating. Um, and I was thinking in sort of preparing for this, thinking about associations of abstraction, what it meant to be an abstract painter in the 50s and what it means to be an abstract painter now, which is quite different. And uh, obviously, one thing that we're sort of... There's a kind of um, whole long history of responses to abstract expressionism which appear almost immediately when abstract expressionism starts to be shown in the early 50s you have artists like Robert Rauschenberg who famously did the erased de Kooning drawing in 1953 his show's coming up at Tate Modern I think it's quite soon isn't it I think the big Rauschenberg retrospective but it's very interesting to think that many artists after abstract expressionism were very fueled by the idea of satirizing, parodying. You know, you have those great um, sardonic brushstrokes by Roy Lichtenstein from 1964 or something. Even Warhol's work from that time very often is a kind of critique of the idea of the purity. And you also think of that famous line by Guston who said, you know, who am I? somebody who, you know, lives in this world of turbulence and change and I go back to my studio to change a red to a blue. You know, this is a famous a paraphrase of, like, why he returns to figuration in the 60s. So I guess what's my question? I mean, that's not my opportunity just to kind of blow off about um, what I know. But, I, but I, you know, I, I wanted to say that, really, because to think about how you as artists, we're talking about, we're leaping back to the 50s. To what extent do you, as abstract painters, and anyone can answer this, feel you also have to take into account the kind of critique of abstract expressionism? Because simply returning to it, you know, it would be just simply, you know, would be somewhat naive. Do you have something? Well, I suppose it's kind of, as, like, as, as trying to be an abstract painter, you, it is definitely something, a route you go through. And at times it, I think, so to go through my sort of story as an abstract painter, there were times where it was kind of, I felt I really needed to nail in my position as a, as a painter and how it related to abstract expressionism. And, in, and you'd sort of do that in terms of irony quite often or, or pastiche perhaps. Um, but I think that it, there became a really sort of point where I just relaxed into it and felt that actually a lot of those ideas are, are present in good work or good thinking anyway. You're always going to be a bit, you're going to cut yourself down at some point and kind of reevaluate what you're doing. But to put some position on it kind of felt like too closed off almost. It was, it was sort of not allowing enough of a human response to something by saying, right, this has to be, this is this, is this answer to that question. Because what's the, what's the question anyway, really? Right. Like, it's a question you put on yourself which means nothing to really anyone else apart from you. Exactly. I mean, it's interesting that there's, there's a kind of sense in American art 
during and after abstract expressionism that artists felt they had to do it. It's like a yeah. rite of passage to go through this kind of emulation or critique yeah. of what the abstract expressionists did. But I mean, I was interested in Selma, with your work, one thing that I've always been very interested in is the fact that you play on this idea about pictorial illusion, which is something that you brought up in your talk as well. This interest in kind of thinking of the canvas as maybe something which might return to a window onto the world, as it used to be said in the Renaissance. But do you, do you see your work as like somehow engaging critically with the legacy of abstract expressionism? I tend to think of my work as engaging with artists that came later. So sort of Frank Stella is one of my sort of proto-painters for my line of thinking. Um, this was a really useful exercise for me. Sorry that I used it as such. <laughs> I hope that was okay. Um, just to th sort of think how you can, you know, sort of mine from history and what things are open to you and what aren't open to you. And so... It, I was kind of talking about how um, there are ideas in modernism that are so well rehearsed now that there's kind of not much left in the language. So I think I'm often called an abstract painter, but it's from a very mm. different um, source of, of language. It's from a, it comes from a very different place. So it's kind of an easy label, but I, I don't think any of us kind of feel that that's really what we're doing. I think we're more engaging with this kind of... We've been left this sort of rectangle remnant of the past and, like, how on earth do we engage when there's just, you know, so many before? What, what can we add to um, any dialogue? What is left to us? So I suppose that's the more... Uh, you know, this was a useful exercise to think, what can I take from that and what really is prohibited? Or what, you know, what's so well rehearsed? Um, so for me, it's the technical aspects. I don't know about, about you guys, what, what specifically, um, if anything, Elisa, you were talking about symbolism and, uh, you know, those sort of... Can I ask questions now? Yeah, go do it. Tell <laughs> yeah, take over, yeah, of course. Um, are those, uh, you know, do you sort of relate that to a language of abstraction or how, how do you arrive at a kind of um, the symbolism for you? What sort of, what sort of negotiation are you making with it? How is it working for you? What's it doing in, the, in your work? Um, in terms of what we've been looking at in, in terms of the abstract expressionist kind of symbolism... Um, I think for me it's more about it's like what you were just saying about there's so much imagery out there there's there's all of this art history which we've got now got access to so you're constantly thinking about it but I think it's it, it feeds in from a lot of what I see day to day it just it it filters in there um, and a lot of the time I don't know whether kind of post-rationalisation is, is good, but it, I kind of think about things afterwards and what they might represent. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky because I don't know whether it's... Um, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. Do you, do you want to...? Well, I suppose it's kind of... Have you got any the, thoughts? The thing that I'm, I think we're kind of all after is to surprise ourselves, to, to make an image where we kind of think, oh, where's that come from? And part of that, I think you kind of have to be aware of history and how you ne negotiate history and how you position yourself within it. But part of you has to be kind of shut off to it at the same time. 
So it's this really hard position as a painter where you're kind of like always open but always kind of closed off to everything else. Mm. And you're kind of like living your own little world. Um, which in terms of like signs and symbols, I sp for, for thinking about Gustin, it's kind of his way of building up his own language that he can kind of just interpreting, interpreting the world around him. And it's kind of a really similar thing, I think, where you can kind of, just by, just by painting what's around you, you hopefully, it doesn't become about that. It becomes about something else. So he, he talks about them kind of, they're not being shoes at some points. So they, I mean, they're obviously shoes. They're so dumbly a shoe that they kind of like, you can't, it's pointless really thinking about the shoe. They have to become something else. Mm. No, so, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, and thinking about this idea of defining yourself as an abstract painter. Because it's interesting to have within the exhibition to have de Kooning, that great room of de Kooning, uh, which I think is my, maybe my, fa my favourite room in the show, which is uh, a, a good example of somebody who was willing to overstep which what what was then a boundary between the figurative and the abstract i mean it got he got into trouble for various reasons on the women paintings but partly because he'd broken this he'd like crossed the rubicon or whatever he's broken the sacred vow like do you actually think of you i mean something sort of just came up like do you actually think of yourselves as abstract painters and is it meaningful to 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 think of yourself as an abstract painter or do you simply think of yourself as a painter i mean how does that uh, how does that work for you why well, I think of myself as an artist, then a painter, then not... I don't really think the label's helpful now. Um, I mean, it was just interesting that you bring up the woman paintings because um, I, uh, Greenberg, Clement Greenberg at the time um, sort of... Um, was um, n you know not very happy with what they were doing. Um, the contouring and uh, the shading was against his sort of program for abstract art, and um, he sort of slated them for what he termed was homeless representation. And I think that's a really useful term today. And I think we see homeless representation happening in quite a lot of interesting art. Um, somebody like Toma Rabs with her use of shading and the way she sort of alternates between um, a, a literal relief and then a, a fictive relief. Um, and so I think we can't... There's so, but there's so many languages to do with abstraction. You know, we've had a whole century of it. There's so many opinions to to think about and what have you. So... Um, it's it's really quite established now. We're not really fighting anything in those terms. So um, yes, it's a quick, it's an easy shorthand, but I don't think anyone's really taking a critical position against representation. I always feel a bit uncomfortable with the, the the title abstract painter. I would think of myself as a painter, but to me, it's just it's a bit of an odd thing to say it's just abstract because it, it is coming from you know, the world around us and all these things are going into it. And <clears throat> um, I don't know, it, see, it does seem like people, a lot of artists are kind of taking from, from history and there's, there's a big kind of discussion around atemporality and, you know, people are kind of selecting, you know, what they're interested in in terms of art history. Um, so I think we're kind of at a stage where anything goes and I think there is there is um, a bit more of a, a push towards representational work as well at the moment there's a bit of a return to figuration um, so 
I think it's more, for me, I feel like it's all part of the same thing. So I think that's why I would say I'm more comfortable with the term painter because it's, you know, I understand that and I understand where other painters are coming from and that's more comfortable for me. Mm. How about you, Gabriel? Well, I mean, it sort of makes me think about how many press releases you see which say they broach the boundary oh, between yeah. abstraction and figuration. <laughs> it's like the kind of like the tagline for pretty much any press release. Um, which, I mean, it's, it's kind of like every painting, isn't it, really? It's, it's sort of somewhere between the two. Mm. Um, and, I mean, the thing, I think, just going back to abstract expressionism, I think what you take from it is just trying to be as human as possible and trying to get across a human, a real human position, which is, like, so hard. That's much more interesting, I think, than thinking about abstraction or figuration. It's kind of how you, how you get across being alive. Uh, do you think that's a, that's a, a concern that's particularly found in abstract expressionism? I think it, it kind of... Perhaps you, 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 you lose the narrative of... of, of um, it's perhaps easier to, to lose a narrative that way. And, and, then, and that way you can perhaps get involved in a more kind of cerebral or experiential moment. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it is only in abstraction. Mm, sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you think it's timely, this show? I mean, do you think it's because we actually see... I've been thinking about this quite a bit because over the last probably three or four years, something that's been talked about more and more in art criticism is the rise of a certain kind of abstraction, which is very closely related to the art market. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about zombie abstraction yeah. or crapstraction or yeah, any number yeah. of things. Some of you might have seen these things. And it's been characterised by Walter Robinson and Jerry Saltz as a certain kind of abstract painting. Um, there are many examples of this that you see in art fairs and commercial galleries of a certain kind of sort of slacker mm. aesthetic in abstraction, which has glancing relationship to abstract expressionism, but not much of one. Mm. But it's interesting, I mean, I don't want to like sully the waters of this by bringing up the art market, but I do think it's, um, it's important, I mean, because it's, that's a subtext of the show as well, I think, in a way. I think it's also always there with abstract expression, it's kind of relation to economy and, and yeah. do the kind of money that was pumped into it to kind of produce a kind of identity for America. And then for now, it's kind of something quite easily Modified. I think it's it's just it's just inescapable. Really. Is that something? I mean, is that something that you as artists feel you? Is that something you're aware of? Is it? Yeah. Is it? Is it problematic? What do you think? I think on in one hand we are battling that um, because we're trying. We're you know I think a more interrogation kind of interrogative mode of painting is what we're all striving for. So the kind of bish-bosh-bash abstraction is a bit disheartening that the market has embraced it. So, um, but, but it's really kind of, I don't really think of that as a problem over here. I think that that is more of a, an yeah. American problem. Yeah. Um, I think we've got our own problems here. <laughs> <laughs> Different problems. Not related to art or...? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might... I think maybe it's just a, a bit of a, a fleeting thing. It's, I feel like it might just be a passing phase, and I think a lot of people have got annoyed about no, it quite now quickly. Now I think there's a lot of really crap figuration around. There's a lot there's of crap figuration. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like... It's just, true. It's, just how the, it's just pointless thinking about it, because the, the market yeah. kind of flips, and it's like, if, if you're thinking about that, you Dead, but do you think let's let's move let's move on from that? It's sort of depressing, uh, <laughs> isn't it? To talk about. But in a more general sense, about timeliness of the show, about how the show might in fact relate in a broader sense to what artists are doing nowadays. Do you think that it has? Well, one thing that is a tricky question to answer is: Do you think that it will have an an impact? Because given the thing about these paintings, of course, 
is that you have to see the real thing, don't you? They just don't, they don't reproduce. I mean, obviously, the extreme example is someone like Reinhardt. But, I mean, you'll all know this. You know, if you see the images in the catalogue or, or, or online, nothing does justice to the experience. And also, the physical experience of being in front of the painting is part of the meaning of the work anyway. That's how you're supposed to engage with it. Do you think that this... Do you think that that it, it, it will have an effect on what artists do? Do you think it's going to have a... It's a, it's a historical show in some ways. But do you think it will have an effect? I think, it's, I think it is timely. And I think sometimes um, you need that kind of distance to before you actually look back at something. But there's so much of a conversation around materiality. We're almost kind of a bit bored about hearing that word. But, you know, when you think about how colour field painting um, kind of inspired support surfaces movement um, in the 60s and 70s, and then now we're, there's so much talk around painting in the expanded field, and people are really looking at those concerns again. So I think it's important to look at th those origins, really. Mm. So I think that's why this show's important now. Yeah, definitely. I think we, we've, as people who've gone through certain kinds of art education, you get taught certain things about abstract expressionism which have solidified into cliches. And it's, I think to some extent, the exhibition addresses, the experience of looking at the painting slightly undoes, the, undoes those cliches anyway, I think. But there, I mean, there are certain things about it. I mean, I know that we, we've had a conversation about this a little bit, which is about the kind of gender balance or imbalance in the show. Do you want to talk about that? Or, do you, or, or am I putting you on the spot a bit? Because I thought it was quite interesting to kind of, you know, it's something that, we, that comes to us as a, a movement that's dominated by men, which is true, like, as many other movements at that time were. But do you think, how do you, read, how do you read that? How do you kind of make sense of that now? Well, I, I kind of felt that it was, it was almost a slight missed opportunity, this show, to sort of readdress some of the history. Um, because they, they could have so easily been more Frankenthalers, for one. I would have loved to have seen a room of those. Um, and also, like, maybe not necessarily put Lili Krasner against Pollock always. Might, might be quite nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel that this, this sort of went with the grain of history, which, yeah, I don't know if that's, that's what, I don't know, I think we now live in a time where history is not necessarily so set in stone. It's not how it was particularly at the time. You can, you can always re, rethink it. And that's, I suppose, what we're trying to do as artists the whole time is by, by looking back at things the whole time is to try and kind of like rethink history. Oh, de definitely, absolutely. I mean, if you, Seeing your work and then going back into, or hearing this discussion maybe, and going back into the show will maybe bring out things that were not anticipated in, in the work, possibly. Yeah. What about omissions from the show? What about what isn't there? You brought up, there's a bit of Frankenthaler. There's one painted by Frankenthaler. I think that in a way, to play devil's advocate a little bit, I mean, I think it's partly down to the fact that we just don't have much of it, do we? I mean, you can have generations of people growing up having, in the UK, not having seen any or hardly any, apart from the Seagram murals and the Tate, which is an exception. There's very little abstract expressionism in British collections. Yeah, but I think it's, I mean, I think it's amazing that the show managed to get all these works together. Um, and I think, yes, I think we'd all do things differently, but I think it's just so fabulous to have this work in. I think it would make a massive impact on the generations of artists to come that will have seen this at various stages of their careers just because we have, we've been you know we kind of we don't get this you know unless you go to Denver and stand in Stills own museum you're not going to get that that sort of experience that we've got here so 
yeah, sure, there's loads of things I'd do differently. <laughs> but, Not you know, so it's great style, that, so. Yeah, it's great that we've got it. No, it's interesting also to think about paintings that have a... And this isn't going to turn into a kind of letter, letter to the editor, Daily Mail thing, yeah. by the way. Um, but but it's, it's, it's like slow painting in a time of speedy image making, right? I guess. And, and, and uh, I've observed... I've been to, into the show quite a few times. I've observed people spending a lot of time with the paintings more than they perhaps might with other works of art. So it's interesting to see. And I wanted to ask you all about that as well, actually, because one of the things about the painters in the Abstract Expressionism show is that they're working at a time when there's actually a limited number of images being circulated, you know, kind of in a, in a wider cultural sense. Whereas, obviously, we live in a time where there's, you know, we're always told we're being bombarded by images, but we are always seeing them, aren't we, constantly? I mean, for you as artists, do you ever think about that idea? About, one, about the kind of plethora of available images anyway, but also about some means of slowing the viewer down? I mean, you remember that, all, that many of these, I mean, think of Rothko, you think of Newman, they really wanted these kind of very slow, and you kind of have to look at them slowly, don't you? Because they, they, they're painted in such a way that they don't reveal themselves immediately. So do you have to, are, they, are these things in your mind as you're making your work or when you're thinking about your work, do you think? I'm not really sure how you could kind of enforce that on the viewer to, no. to, to try and get them to slow down, although I think it's something we should all bear in mind. But, I mean, in terms of what you were saying about being bombarded with images, that's something I think about a lot. And I think a lot of that seeps into the work, but then painting is like the opposite of that. It's a slow, considered act, and it's almost a way of dealing with, with that constant bombardment. Um, but then it's about that as well. I'm, I'm, I'm adding to it as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like you're saying that... The, I'm so into the detail, but what happens when you're a painting about that far away? And I think that's just a way of slowing down where it's not just the image of, of looking on the screen the whole time. Because mm. um, it is, that is, you know, I want people to look at the paintings rather than looking at the photo on Instagram. That's not what interests mm. me, is that experience of kind of flicking through and finding the next cool thing. Mm. Um, and, and, and I love work that makes me stop and slow down. So those Ad Reinhardt's, which is, you know, it's kind of really different from my approach to painting, but that moment where you have to sort of stop mm. and it sort of demands demands you to stop mm. is kind of, yeah, it's kind of very important, I think. Yeah, it's interesting in how striking that experience yeah. is, isn't it? Um, is, I, it is it in your mind as you're making your work? Or? Well, I think, you know, I think there's... Uh, when you try and think of these artists at that time and the... Uh, you know, I always think of them as kind of zooming into painting, you know, this kind of... Uh, the weight of uh, European art and then you over in America and the... the the kind of this sense of freedom and the sense of scale, and they sort of really tapped into that moment. And the scale, you know, the sort of the scale, and when we're presented with them now, it's, it, I think it is difficult to try and look at them through those eyes, but it's also very interesting to try and look at them through our eyes, and I think that's the sense that you're responding to, that we've sort of got this um, image saturation, but then you come here and it you're in the gallery space and you're sort of having to engage with these great big walls of colour. Um, and why is this great big wall of colour in front of me? And, you know, why is there a division in it? And, all, and everything just gets simpler and taken right back. And I think that's kind of the joy of painting for me. It can just do so many things. Um, and I think the experience of, you know, being among so many great Pollocks and um, 
and stills and just the de Koonings, I think, are fabulous in the mm. show. So to just get this experience, I think, mm. I hope everyone's really enjoyed it. I, I, yeah, I guess. I, I imagine, uh, I'm sure they have. <laughs> I imagine uh, that many of these works that you've all seen in the show are works that you may have only seen in reproduction before. I'm guessing, I don't know. Because there are some, there's some like Blue Poles, unless you've been to Canberra, it's, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, have there been any surprises for you in going to the show? I mean, maybe in seeing a painting that you'd only ever seen as a reproduction before. And in the case of Blue Poles by Pollock, that's a really good example, I think, because it's so, it's such an odd, clumsy, awkward, yeah. interesting, weird, flawed painting, I yeah, think. Yeah. But I find that fascinating anyway. Um, but it doesn't really, just does not. Just, as I say, it doesn't reproduce at all. So that, for me, has been a surprise. But have, th have there been surprises in terms of maybe artists you hadn't looked at who in the flesh have a different kind of quality to the, to the experience of seeing them on a the screen? Or an artist whose work you already knew, but you've changed your feeling about them because you're seeing these works? Your experience of looking at the show, I guess. Yeah, I, I think uh, looking at the early Pollocks, that was sort of... I was trying to work them out and trying to think. I hadn't seen them and sort of to be able to see them together with the later works that we know and love so well. So um, the, the man-woman ones yeah. and stuff like that, I was really sort of quite drawn in by that as a kind of historical context for his work. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I think maybe the, the Clifford Still work because, you know, you just can't get, you can't get a sense of those on a reproduction especially on a small screen, you just have to be standing right there in front of it. And like I said before, just this, the, the, the weird thing it does where it kind of just sucks all the light out and you're there feeling like this tiny individual in front of it. And it's so transportive um, and you just can't, yeah. I never would have known that without standing in front of it. Yeah, I suppose thinking about those Pollocks actually, just thinking like how, I think it's quite easy to sort of label him quite easy just a splashy guy mm. and that's all you ever think about with him and it becomes like a symbol of what what this painter is mm. but they're, they're just so varied aren't they there's there's so much kind of precision involved and so much so much of that play between abstraction and figuration as mm. well i think in them which uh, you know they they yeah they, they're kind of really surprising mm. um and then i, I mean I, I kind of felt also that i i just probably shouldn't say this but i i was also i couldn't really the Clifford Still, I found them really impenetrable, actually. Maybe that's part of them, but I, I just found them so... Um, I kind of really wanted to like them, and then and people just couldn't. Or I wanted to engage them, but just couldn't. And I don't know what that is. Just, I don't know if that's just a personal... Like, I think there's some things where there must be people in there who everyone thinks, I wish I liked that more. I know I should like them, but I just don't. I'm just not, I'm just not experiencing it. <laughs> and it must be the way with a lot of the paintings there, for a lot of people. You can't like everything, yeah. basically. Yeah. Exactly. It's the broccoli of abstract yeah. expressions. <laughs> do you think... I mean, this is very soon to say, I know, but do you think that seeing the show, looking at the work, thinking about the work, will have any impact on you as an artist? Or any effect on you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it always has. I've always had um, a kind of love of... American painting more than... Well, it was only kind of recently chatting to my contemporaries that I realised they had an affinity for British art. And I was like, but American art. So that was a kind of a, a, a kind of news to me. And a kind of... So I'd always, I guess I'd always naturally um, drifted over there in my mind um, to seek out these works. So... 
but yes, I mean, I think every time I, you know, every time I go to see something, it filters in. You know, the Monet show here was just, you know, the, all these the, these things resonate in us, and I think they, you know, find the little ways of coming out somehow. Mm. I don't know what you think, Lisa? Yeah, I agree definitely. Um, and just thinking about how, I suppose that movement, abstract expressionism, how it's influenced artists that I did look at quite a lot before, like. Um, Howard Hodgkin and that idea of, you know, that really emotive breaking out of the frame and the object. Um, uh, and Per Kirkby as well. I think it's just made me look at a lot of work quite differently and just thinking a bit more about what I've been talking about, signs and symbols, and that's, that's all come from a lot of the reading I've done um, about the show and about the work in it. Um, so yeah, I, f I feel like it will. It's going to have a big impact, I think, on on my practice. Yeah. It's so interesting that you say looking at this work is making you look at other artists' work in a different way as well. Yeah, That's it's all really fascinating. The way it branches out and it's had all these knock-on effects, and it's yeah, it just kind of makes it puts it all in context. It makes you think about how it has actually affected everything, and you know, art history and what a big impact it has had. You know. Definitely. And actually, on that note, I think it would be so fascinating to go to see Robert Rauschenberg with Abstract Expressionism in mind mm. and to see, you know, to see how that resonates. Yeah. Um, Gabriel, what about you? Do, do you think that it... Is it too soon to say? Do you think that this well, is... Well, no, I went away thinking I, I want to go to the studio. So that's what I was thinking. That's good. That's what I was thinking. That's great. And I thought... And then, well, I'm actually really... I quite often do react quite quickly to a thing. So I was thinking I'd quite like to work in steel after looking at some uh, ah, David yeah. Smith, yeah. Fantastic. That's wonderful. And then I went and saw the end also and thought, I'd quite like to make some faces. So it kind of always changes. Like, yeah. It's about transfiguration, <laughs> yeah. eh? Yeah, I have to recommend that if anyone hasn't yeah. seen that. The uh, exhibition of James Ensor, curated by Luke Toyman's upstairs, is, uh, I think, staggering. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. And a really interesting partner. I mean, you know, fascinating. Can I say thank you all so much? That was so, so fascinating. I mean, really amazing. It's always a great experience. I mean, I find, actually speaking of that, uh, Toy Luke Toyman's curated show, I always think it's fascinating to hear, not an art historian or an art critic, but an artist, a practicing artist's perspective on, on art, you know, is always, you know, makes me go back to it and think about it in a new way. So it's going to change the way I ex experience the show and hopefully for other people as well. Can I thank everybody for coming along? And can I thank uh, Gabriel Hartley, Lisa Denyer and Selma Parler? Thank you so much. It's brilliant. <laughs>